Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco. Hi, I'm Graham from Vancouver, Canada. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Yes. I'm Jesse Thorne. A lawyer, a writer, a psychiatrist, and a Stanford theater professor got together to write a humor book about earning your MBA on the toilet. The original like uh, goal was that that no person could learn one meaningful thing from this book. That would have to be like a certainty of it. <laughs> but that didn't turn out to be the most useful way to write. It's bullseye. Coming up, Rob Bedecker and James Richmith are half of the comedy group Casper Hauser. They'll talk about how they balance comedy with full-time jobs, how they pick their jokes democratically, and why they chose the Bay Area over fame in Hollywood. If you stay in San Francisco as a, as a comedian, you're making a very specific choice. Then a look back at the life of David Rakoff. For years, when he was still an aspiring writer, David was just the funny guy in the office. It is a strange position to be in because as you walk away from breaking up a group of people who say, God, you're so funny. All you can think is, God, I hate myself. David Rakoff's new book was released posthumously this month. To reflect, I'll play excerpts from our past conversations. I wanted more than anything in my life to have a creative life. And I say it with no trace of disingenuousness that I am really the luckiest person in North America. And the editors of the new film site, The Dissolve, recommend a couple of new movies for you. Woody Allen's Blue Jasmine and the disturbing pseudo-documentary The Act of Killing. Plus, I'll talk about Elliot Gould's turn as a 50s noir hero set adrift in 1970s L.A. in Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Casper Hauser may be the only comedy group with a book blurbed by comedy's two most beloved Daves, Dave Barry and Dave Foster Wallace. They've built an unlikely cult following out of their home base of San Francisco. Unlikely because none of them is a full-time comic. They're a lawyer, a writer, a psychiatrist, and a Stanford theater professor. Fans like Pat Oswalt and Graham Linehan and Matt Besser trade stories of catching them at comedy festivals and reading their books which include Sky Mall, Happy Crap You Can Buy from a Plane, Weddings of the Times, and now a book about business. It's called Earn Your MBA on the Toilet. Unleash unlimited power and wealth from your bathroom. And it's even stranger and more hilarious than that title suggests. One of their long-running stage characters who makes an appearance in the book is business motivational speaker Blaine Cardoza, author of Vice President of Your Own Life and Houston, We Have a Problatunity. Here's an excerpt from one of his best-known talks explaining his pillars for success. To give you a little background on where this system came from, I was studying at near Stanford University in the 60s, and I took part in a little psychological experiment in a locked facility. They gave me PCP. What do I do? Bend the bars, get out, make a star map, catch a deer. The next day, the professor who visits me says, Blaine, we didn't give you PCP. You got the placebo. <laughs> what? Folks, that's a sugar pill. It was all up here. I had unleashed the natural PCP in my mind. That night, I created the entire system. Now, I found out later that they had, in fact, given me quite a bit of PCP, but it doesn't matter. It is still in you. You, you just have to prime the pump. You have to take a little PCP to get a little PCP, okay? That... Did you see that? I just got 5,000 ideas. <laughs> Two of the members of Casper Hauser, Rob Bedecker and James Richmond, join me in the studio. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you. It's great to have you here. So um, you did President Obama right when President Obama was elected. The New York Times wedding section, which is obviously ripe for parody. Why were you drawn to the world of the business book? Well, I think the obvious was that the the massive economic downturn. I don't think we had in mind a such a satirical book, but you couldn't write about business right now and and not be um 
very angry about what happened um, in, in 2007. Um, We're uh, also kind of drawn to these um, self-help, but like the dummies kind of books, and that form is really appealing. So the advanced degree do-it-yourself idea was always a draw. The book is really not about business. It's about success, and it's about the ways that we go about them. It's about striving. And bounding is a great topic, always has been a great topic for comedy. The book is not really about business. It's about unleashing unlimited power and wealth. (laughs) (laughs) Did you guys spend any time with self-help books or business books in preparing to write this? Or did you just write it from your weird, twisted idea of what those are based on seeing their covers at Barnes & Nobles? <laughs> sort of both. We, we, <laughs> we tried to write it without any business knowledge or terminology at all. Yeah, the original, the original like, uh, goal was that, that no person could learn one meaningful thing from this book. That would have to be like a certainty <laughs> of it. But that didn't turn out to be the most useful way to write so (laughs) you know avoiding organizing yeah avoiding all facts and so essentially the chapter heads are the same as uh, a a curricula from any major business school we just cribbed them from wikipedia wikipedia stanford business school whatever and and so the chapter heads are basically that way and and usually the first two sentences are real straight setups and then it diverts and it i don't I do not know why the book diverted so wildly. It is clearly our craziest book, I, I think. And it should be said that for folks who haven't read your other books, they're pretty crazy. Yeah, they're crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's psychotic. <laughs> yeah, it is sort of. In the, and I mean that as something we were striving for. You guys want to read something from the book? Sure. Uh, I'll start with this is about uh, this is a quick tip. Quick tip, if you're a passenger in your boss's car and it is a convertible, be prepared when she puts the top down to feel like the roof is ripping right off. Scream with your mouth shut if you have to because the first time you sit in a fancy rich car like that and the roof starts peeling up, you will literally hear screaming and not know that it's you. And if you do that, if you scream like that, you will be fired. Rob, you mentioned that one of the things that was appealing to you about um, writing this kind of book was not just the business thing, but also the four dummies thing. Yeah. What about the four dummies thing was appealing? Just the the sort of gross over-distillation of <laughs> any topic. I mean, there's four dummies for everything, right? For uh, nuclear physics. Is nuclear physics a thing? No. If it, if it were, they would have a four <laughs> dummies for it. Uh, we, we have a, a character in our book called Learning Dave, who's a guy who wears a, a sort of styrofoam toilet hat. And it's just a <laughs> chipper sort of can-do guide, as if all one need to do is saunter through the 10 easy lessons of whatever and become a master. Yeah, and I, I also think that with uh, we took the dummy uh, – our publisher, which is 10-speed crown – has put out the previous bathroom readers as well. And so they they came to us and asked about something that was in this sort of bite-sized, uh, pulped-down style. And I, and I think that's maybe why the book came out so crazy, because we took the dummy thing to... I mean, there's stuff in here of like, you know, in the morning, look in the mirror, are my pants inside out? You know, that, that's... that's <laughs> Yeah, and again, just the, what I love about those books too is the optimism, and it is really appealing. Like I see those books and think, "Great, I can I can learn about astronomy, and not just learn about it, but get it down." You know, like get <laughs> get pretty good at astronomy or at um, electrical engineering. And it's done through through the presumption that you're an an idiot. <laughs> yeah, and I think the anger, you know, I think the anger comes from the fact that the you know, in America, for example, a sex offender is essentially watched for the rest of their life uh, to the point where they are tracked and you can go check on them. And now I I believe that that's a, an adequate response. But you can wipe out the retirement. You can gamble with the retirement of an entire generation and lose it and cause poverty in a bunch of people that work their whole lives. And we, we wouldn't treat it with anywhere near that kind of fear or anger. And that that is 
completely backwards. And that's why, for example, the last chapter in this book is just called Prison Life. You know, it's basically <laughs> you, that's where you're headed. And it's not that bad for MBAs. You're going to meet a lot of them in there. That would be great if disgraced CEOs couldn't live within 500 feet of school. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, exactly. You know, and because, and, I mean, the damage that they do is very clinical. It's, it's a white collar damage, but it is absolutely massive. And um, someone goes and robs a bank. That's interesting to us. Somebody robs a million banks. Nah. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are James Richmouth and Rob Bedeker. They're members of the comedy group Casper Hauser. The group just wrote a new book. It's called Earn Your MBA on the Toilet. Unleash unlimited power and wealth from your bathroom. Let's hear another section from the book. This is from the management chapter. A great way to think about the perfect manager is to imagine if John Wayne and Yoda had a baby. Put aside whether that's actually possible or whether getting Yoda pregnant would be a form of playing God, and just imagine the skills that that baby would possess. Keep bringing your mind back to the baby itself, not the conception part. Lots of people find themselves (laughs) mentally stuck on the image of John Wayne and Yoda mating. That is not the takeaway here. That baby would be wise, tough, empathetic, and powerful. It's tempting to imagine Yoda wearing a cowboy getup and John Wayne rushing in and sweeping him off his feet, kissing him, Yoda, on the mouth and neck. You're just wasting your time thinking about that. Could they have a baby? We don't know. Of course they could. This is just a thought exercise to highlight the leadership traits that that baby might have if it were viable, if it weren't a monster. Mental images of Yoda in labor, probably on his planet, Dagobah, and actually giving birth to the sickly green swamp cowboy are just so far from the point we're trying to make. Who delivers the baby? Luke, one of Wayne's cowpoke drinking buddies? Doesn't matter. What matters? A person, a man, a woman, a child who had John Wayne's gritty take-charge attitude and Yoda's calm, zen-like strength and searing insight? That guy would be a great manager. Maybe the greatest ever. I haven't read a lot of self-help books or business books. But I did once visit my in-law's rural cabin and um, not bring enough books. I had read all of the books and the hike that everyone was going on was too long for me. So I I just had to read the books that were on the shelf. And I went with Who Moved My Cheese, the best-selling book. And I read all of Who Moved My Cheese while they were on a hike and I was struck by, first of all, you can tell why it's a best-selling book. It's, it, you know, it's, it, I was motivated by it. But everything is a parable. There is no non-parable. There is a story, a narrative that is attached to every single thing that happens. And that must be a wonderful opportunity because you can make those stories incorrect and wrong in many ways. Yeah, when you start looking for meaning, it's everywhere. I mean, everything is meaningful. It's like buying a new car and then you notice it everywhere. And you can transform any raw material into a symbol. And with business, it's it's great. That's why I think this book allowed us to just roam way outside the gates because everything is fair game. Yeah, and ideas, you know, it's sort of a low status position to want something, you know. And it's especially low status to to have a crazy idea that you're going to make a company out of, you know? And that, I think, is one of the things that makes it kind of rich. How do you guys, with a four-person sketch comedy group where everyone has their own demanding professional job, how do you write things? Mm, Well, I don't know. It depends on the book. It's a lot like— It's complicated— you know, I'm a big Python fan. If you So Python, people would step forward for things they were interested in. Eric Idle was going to be in charge of music and book projects, and he was going to round people up and say, sit here, you're going to do this part. And so there's a little bit of that. Besides stage shows, people express different interests and stuff. And then the modular books, you just – you put all the ideas together, and then you we go through a very democratic and uh, anonymous voting process. Anonymous, really? All sorts of crazy schemes to make it anonymous. Yeah, it, we used to draw ideas out of a hat in you know, writing sketches and pit you'd have to pitch an idea that that wasn't yours to sort of remove the the ego from it because it's it gets really uh, messy and 
you, you you lose perspective. Yeah. So then at the end, no matter what, once the once the modular ideas have been sort of voted in, then they're combed over by the entire group, and basically we we actually project uh, scripts and um, manuscripts onto the wall with a projector, and all of us are in the room, and you just kind of comb through the entire thing again and again and again, rewriting jokes. What's the worst fight you ever had? I remember a sketch. Uh, we did a don. We had a couples therapy sketch. James and John, who are identical twins, uh, were in, in couples therapy constantly as Don and Danita. Doctor Klein was leading you through a visualization exercise, and you had to imagine something about your baggage. and And the debate was whether it was pencils. The word pencils were in yeah, your bag right. or on this train. And we had a huge fight over whether. There should be pencils in this bag. That's right. And uh, who knows what happened. But your job, whether you feel like it or not, is to advocate uh, for your ideas. And there's really days when you just don't feel like that. But the take home for a group like ours, which has been together for 13 years, is actually that we mostly get along very conspicuously well. And partly because we're either family or or friends that go way, way back. And groups, I think groups don't stay together because of personalities and conflicts. And so... So really, if anything, our, our conflict level is quite low. We're pretty diplomatic, pretty good at handling stuff. But there, you know, there's, there are skirmishes. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm speaking with Rom Bedeker and James Richmith. They're half of the comedy group Casper Hauser. Their new book is called Earn Your MBA on the Toilet. Unleash unlimited power and wealth from your bathroom. They're an atypical comedy group. All the guys in the group have day jobs, several with advanced degrees, and they're not in Los Angeles or New York. They're based in San Francisco. You guys have been together for a really long time, and I think one of the big reasons that sketch comedy groups in particular break up is that it's impossible to make a living doing sketch comedy uh, with the exception of basically the cast of Saturday Night Live and at any given time the cast of one television show or two television shows. Um, and, you know, if, even those even those sketch comedy groups who get one of those one or two other television shows, it runs for three years and then they have to break up. Um, you guys have stayed together perhaps by adopting a very different set of objectives? Well, we do what what we want to do. I, I think because we're not uh, here in L.A. or in New York, we're, we have a distance from the industry. We all have other jobs, and so we make choices a little differently. And we've always been a group that's about the four of us. It was never, there were never any questions about auditioning other members, e- even though there are plenty of, you know, wonderful people who could add to our group we just never thought of the group as separate from the four of us it was it's like a band you know and the thing is it's not as if if a network had come to us and said you you, here's your own sketch show we certainly would have done it depending on at at which time or certainly will uh but the big decision is whether to leave san francisco and if you stay in san francisco as a as a comedian you're making a very specific choice and then skymall came to us in sort of an unexpected way and then we realized that we had a viable thing going here that we had gotten a book deal that we sold this pitch in days and then it came out and we were very very pleased with the response and it was a great calling card for us and then next pitch boom sold that book as well and we're writing with people that we really respected and liked too so it wasn't as if we all sat down and said we're going to be auteurs you know it just it worked that way and we get to stay in san francisco and um and that has been great too there was a time not all that long ago when uh you, James, announced to me that you and Rob, if I remember correctly, were moving to Los Angeles. It was done. Yeah. It was a done deal. Yeah. It would have been very interesting, too. And uh, what happened is I met my now wife right in the middle of that phone call when I was talking to you. Uh, <laughs> and, and and six months after that, we, my now wife, introduced Rob to his now wife. And so that that was a big one, too. Not that they wouldn't have supported whatever move or decision. But I think that was part of it is that that things change. And the, the other thing is that we may have, you know, if things had gone our way, potentially have gotten fairly mainstream comedy, maybe gotten a writing jobs down here, but it would have been the pair of us. And and I don't think it would have been a good for Casper Hauser, even if we could have paid the rent doing comedy. So it's very hard to say what, what that would have been like. But yeah, we were extremely close. I had actually given notice. And um, 
it just sort of evaporated. I don't know. Did you have to ungive notice? Basically, which they were they were uh, very disappointed about. No, <laughs> uh, no, they were they were quite glad. I want to ask you, James, specifically. We mentioned you're a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. What is the relationship between your work as a psychiatrist, where you're dealing with a- actual literal mental disorders, and also legally and morally required high levels of discretion mm-hmm. and your work as a comedian where you, you know, go on stage <laughs> dressed as a woman or whatever and say intentionally weird and upsetting things. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd like to say, for example, in the context of this book where we use the word psychosis, surprisingly, we're not really talking about psychosis. And I would say that the the so-called craziness of this book is – not even related to my my day job the the level of sort of professional decorum that's required in several of our jobs is relatively high but there's been few there have been very few mashups very few there's been a couple times where clients have seen me uh it's just slightly i work in a different town that's 30 miles away not for that reason but it just means there for for some reason there have been very few collisions between the two now i would never do anything in my comedy job that was uh inappropriate or unethical and i in fact I learned a lesson about this i was doing porchlight the storytelling series in san francisco and without giving any names or anything without breaching any confidentiality. I was talking about what it what it's like to be both a psychiatrist and a comedian. And somebody came up afterwards and they were upset with me. And they felt like the laughs that were coming from the crowd, that th- those laughs were sort of derived in some way by talking about my day job and that just didn't feel right. And I understood that. I would not do that again. Uh, what I did was not unethical, not remotely, uh, but you just – you have to pick and choose. And so it hasn't cost us, I think, that much. But yeah, you, you, you do have two masters. Why don't you read another piece from the book? <clears throat> this is from Business Psychology. Several years ago, researchers did a very interesting study. They put up different motivational posters in the break rooms of various businesses and measured each company's performance. And they discovered something fascinating. Companies that displayed a poster of a harpy eagle eating a poodle quickly went bankrupt. Meanwhile, businesses that got the poster of gold medal winning gymnast Mary Lou Retton as a fairy went bananas. Something about the emotional impact of the images affected people's ability to work. So they took the study one step further. They swapped critical features in the posters, trying to isolate which aspects were affecting people most. They created a poster of Mary Lou Retton eating a poodle and another with a harpy eagle laying a cartoon fairy egg. And bingo, both companies did about the same. Great. Casper Hauser's new book is Earn Your MBA on the Toilet, Unleash Unlimited Power and Wealth from Your Bathroom. Rob Bedeker, James Richmith, thanks so much for joining us on Bullseye. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks a lot, Jesse. After a break, the editors of Pitchfork's new film site, The Dissolve, recommend a couple of new movies for you, Blue Jasmine and The Act of Killing plus a reflection on the life of the late David Rakoff. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This month, the big indie music site Pitchfork expanded into movie coverage. Their new site is uh, movie reviews and criticism and discussion. It's called The Dissolve. And lucky for us, there are a few familiar faces at the helm. There are a lot of summer movies competing for our attention. We're calling Keith Phipps, who is founder and editorial director of The Dissolve, and Dissolve editor Scott Tobias to sift through some of the stuff that's in theaters right now. Hi, Keith. Hi, Scott. Good to talk to you guys under new auspices. Yes. Hello, Jesse. Yeah, thank you. Good to talk to you as well. Congratulations on the big launch. I'm, I am impressed to hear that you are launching a huge movie site out of the great city of Chicago, uh, which is not one of the two movie cities of America. It's going to be all Blues Brothers coverage? It's going to be all Blues Brothers coverage. 
I get the impression, though, that Chicago might be a, an advantageous location in the sense that this is a site that is more about criticism and discussion than it is about just the latest insider info on the new Adam Sandler movie. That's exactly right. I think I think that's the big advantage of being between the coasts that we just we're not at the same parties. We don't run into people that we're criticizing. There's a nice rem- remove from from both of those uh, universes, so it's nice. Let's talk about recommendations, Keith. Let's start with your recommendation: a, a new comic drama from Woody Allen called. Blue Jasmine. It stars Kate Blanchett and Alec Baldwin. So I guess the question whenever a new Woody Allen movie comes out is simply good new Woody Allen movie or bad new Woody Allen movie? <laughs> this is a good one. This is, a, this is one of the best ones of, of recent years, I would say. Very much in the vein of the one of the film I liked best in the last decade, which is Vicky Cristina Barcelona. It's kind of weird because sometimes Woody Allen doesn't get women right at all. But in these two movies, uh, which are nice character studies about women, uh, he he's, has you know he's, he's they're great, uh, and a lot of that belongs a lot of the credit for that here belongs to Kate Blanchett, who delivers one of the best performances of her career as this pampered New York wife of a, a business tycoon uh, who has fallen on hard times. Didn't I hear Eddie say he knows a dentist looking for help? Oh, forget it! Jesus, it's too menial. I go nuts. I want to go back to school. I want to get my degree and become, you know, something substantial. It's really uh, an incisive portrait of of, of a woman uh, on the edge and often over the edge of a nervous breakdown. Scott, let's talk about your recommendation. Uh, a, A really fascinating sounding documentary called The Act of Killing. And when I say documentary, from what I've read about this movie, maybe that doesn't quite encompass what this is. Maybe you could describe it. Yeah, it kind of stretches the form in a, in a very exciting way. Um, this is this documentary is by Joshua Oppenheimer, and it follows these guys who used to be, you know, you know, in in, the, in mid '60s uh, Indonesia, uh, you know, gangsters and mercenaries were, were empowered to to basically determine who who were communists and then kill them. And and this film follows a couple of them and actually has them uh, reenact some of these killings um, uh, for the camera. You know, these these guys, they're they're cinephiles. Uh, They take it very seriously, and they they go through these reenactments uh, in in a tremendously chilling and disturbing fashion. That sounds like an absolutely terrifying prospect to watch people reenact murders in, in which they actually participated. Uh, yeah, it, it is. And I think it becomes kind of a cause of some reflection for one, this one, this one the, the, the lead guy, his name is Anwar Congo, he's, he's responsible personally for killing about a thousand people, uh, most, most, mostly by strangulation. And there's a bit in the film where he is asked to be the victim in a, in a scene, and, uh, and it completely stuns him to have the tables turned and to, to really kind of recognize the kind of impact that he was having on, on, on people. Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps are editors of the new movie site, The Dissolve. Scott recommends the new documentary, The Act of Killing, and Keith recommends Woody Allen's latest, Blue Jasmine. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The world has spent almost a year without David Rakoff. He died of cancer in 2012. Rakoff's writing was exceptionally funny, but it was also exceptionally incisive. He was both of those things in conversation, too. He was the kind of guy who saw the darkness in the world, acknowledged it, made a perfect joke, and then showed the way to be good despite it all. I wasn't lucky enough to know David Rakoff well, but the times I spent speaking with him on my show are among the highlights of my career. Rakoff finished his last book just a few weeks before he died. It's a beautiful novel written in iambic pentameter. It's called Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish. Today, to reflect, I'd like to play a couple of my past conversations with David Rakoff. David and I first spoke by phone in 2005. His most recent book at the time was Don't Get Too Comfortable, a collection of essays largely about American indulgence and excess. 
I think often about what my then-girlfriend, now wife, told me after she heard this interview. She turned to me and she said, and I swear this is true, Jesse, you know you were flirting with David Rakoff, right? And for the record, I didn't, but I can see now how it happened accidentally. He was as charming a man as I've ever spoken with. In those days, I was still doing the show as a volunteer at my college radio station. I even had an office job. We talked about how he got started in his career. You were not a writer for a long time before you were a writer. That, that's true. You're, yeah. You mentioned your age. Fraud, your first book, came out in 2001, 2000, 2002, somewhere in there. Yeah, 2001, about four years ago. 2001. So for a long time, you didn't have any books. So what, what were you up to? Well, for a long time, I worked in publishing, uh, either as an editor or in other capacities within a publishing house. I worked at a literary agency for many years. I, um, you know, for for a good portion of that time, I was uh, working to facilitate the creative work of other people. And it made me really bitter. And those were very <laughs> sad and angry years because, of course, I had my own little ineffable, unformed dreams of what it is I wanted to become, but I was uh, scared, you know, and it, it, it stunned me into inaction for many, many years until finally a kind of panic at uh, the life of quiet desperation that I was leading uh, finally goaded me into some kind of action. I slowly started writing, and for many years before I published a book, I, you know, I was a writer. I, I was uh, doing freelance writing for uh, many publications and stuff, but I was still in my day job uh, in publishing, so I was doing both. Um, and then slowly but surely, the writing itself started to provide me with a living that allowed me, after golly, about 13 years in the world of day jobs, uh, to extricate myself and become a full-time freelance writer. What what was it that got you out of um, writing terror and into writing writing what was it uh it was i guess a combination of uh, and i'm not even joking combination of therapy <laughs> uh where which you know took me a good long time and uh the kindness of friends who all worked in you know publishing and magazines and such and i i always had a bit of a reputation for being kind of a bit of a clever speaker Mm-hmm. You know, and I, you know, and I made it known that I, uh, if not enjoyed writing, you know, wrote here and there, you know, in private or whatever. No, I kind of write. I journal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I journal. I scrapbook. And uh, so they, I was given the opportunity by various people who said, you know, would you write a piece for us? Would you, would you try your hand at this? And and that was, you know, a real gift. One of the one of the things that I read in uh, another interview, I think I think it was an interview you did for your for fraud, was that um, you you were living for a number of years as the funny guy in the office. Yes, that's a that's a very difficult position to be in um, for anyone uh, with you know creative dreams. Who yearns to be the funny guy elsewhere? Who yearns to be the funny guy on television in mm. books? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It is a kind of strange position to be in because you, as you walk away from breaking up a group of people who say, "God, you're so funny," all you can think is, "God, I hate myself." <laughs> it's both an enviable position because, look, it's better than being the hated guy in the office. That's true the fellow in the office who receives the anonymous note that says, none of us want to tell you, but you actually smell terrible. The guy, the person in the office about whom something terrible is written in a bathroom stall. Exactly. Or who's called in front of, you know, into human resources to be told <laughs> For a that talk. he has to brush his teeth. You know. uh, so it's better to be the funny guy in the office, but it is, um, and look, it's not always the role of the person who is desperate to leave said office. But in my case, it was. One of the interesting things that I find about your writing is that while you are often placed into kind of classic comic first-person reporter situations like um, 
riding on uh, the Concorde and then riding on Hooters Air or gay guy goes to Playboy TV shoot in uh, the Caribbean or something like that. And I wonder, how do you approach these kind of pieces that that might lend themselves to just kind of cracking a few fish out of water jokes and being done with it to adding something something more to it? Well, you can only tell the fish out of water joke a few times because then you're just a fish in water. <laughs> you, you know, I've, I've told this joke many, many times, but it's like you can only get drunk and sleep with the entire football team three times and claim that you were <laughs> drunk. On the fourth time, you're just the school <laughs> You know what I mean? So I can't, I can't keep going back to the well of talking about, oh, this is so uncomfortable for me. No, and it's not like things get much more comfortable for me. I still do not enjoy the outdoors or direct sunlight. Or, you know, I don't want to go to a Playboy shoot because guess what? I don't really look at naked women. Um, but, but those are really, to simply rely upon those jokes is very thin broth, both for the reader, um, but more for the writer. And, you know, first and foremost, you know, I want to do a good job because I want to get more work. You know, it's how I make my living, obviously. But I also need to keep it interesting for me. And I've, I need to try and not feel like uh, a complete hack, you know. So, um, <laughs> but it's not, not like I go in... Not to put too fine a point on it or anything. You know, so it's not like I go in... How do I explain this? You approach any writing assignment, I think Joan Didion said this, is like you, you want your piece to be, quote, the world. You know, and of course it isn't the world, but you go in with these, there's that sort of larger overarching lofty dream that you have for anything that you might approach writing-wise. That said, I never approach a story with, how can I make this weighty, how can I make it mean something? I really do just approach it with my notebook and a pen, and I just think my task right now, the, the task at hand, is to write as much as possible. Something happens, write it down. Think of something, write it down. And in that case, it's, it's very much like a gerbil on a, on, a, on a habit trail wheel or whatever. I'm just trying to get as many words of notes into my notebook and then into my brain. And then it's in the committing those notes later on to uh, the keyboard where I think of, you know, where I can expand on them. But oftentimes as well, the physical act of scribbling in a notebook will lead me to think of other associative things you know and it's nice because it keeps you still it keeps your body still which keeps you invisible which keeps the things happening without you interfering with them does that make sense that does the late david rakoff that phone conversation first aired back in 2005 this month david rakoff's first novel was released posthumously it's called love dishonor marry die cherish perish. To mark the occasion, we're playing a couple of our past conversations. Our second talk was in 2011. David and I talked about his career, his struggles with cancer, and the virtues of pessimism. He had just put out a book of essays called Half Empty. I want to talk about uh, the story that uh, opens this book, it's the story of you trying to write this magazine article in 2001, um, just about 10 years ago. Um, t- tell, me, uh, tell me about what, what the subject of that article was. Well, the, it's funny. The first chapter was an absolute bear of a piece. It took me essentially nine years to write, uh, on and off. The subject of the article, which was assigned by the New York Times Magazine, was there is a psychologist named Julie Norum, and she's at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. And she wrote a book called The Positive Power of Negative Thinking, which is about, and it's a beautiful book. It's really a great bit of science writing, and she's so smart and erudite, and the book just rollicks along. It's a, it's a really terrific book. And it's about a very specific kind of anxiety management technique called defensive pessimism. And most people are born with it to some degree. I mean, there are very few full-on, you know, unnuanced strategic optimists in the world. But defensive pessimists are, in the way, they're cousins to dispositional pessimists. They see the world as being perhaps a little more negative than it actually is, like 
more, most pessimists. But what defensive pessimists do is they then take that presentiment of disaster that, you know, this is going to suck kind of premonition, and they take arms against it, and they envision their worst-case scenario coming true. You know, this is going to suck because of A, B, C, and D. And they go through each aspect of suckhood, and they <laughs> they come up with a, a contingency plan as to what they're going to do to combat that. And it's a means of claiming agency and getting over your anxiety about the world. You know what I mean? It's a means of, in fact, not staying in bed all day. You know, So it's a, kind of an interesting thing. It certainly explained me to myself, and it explains most people I know in my circle to themselves. I mean, we all do it to some extent, and certainly it can be argued that I live in New York City, which is a kind of a self-selecting group of people who all do that kind of thing. It's a kind of a darkish, melancholic place, or it can be you know, between the Jamba Juices and Nord Nordstrom Rack stores. But, you know, it's it's that kind of thing. But it was also at a time in my life where I was unable to tease apart the threads of anxiety and sadness. And while when you test for sadness, you're testing for anxiety, they're emphatically two different things. You can be anxious and happy. At that time in my life, I didn't understand how, and I couldn't tease apart the fragments of the, the, the strands of the science. And so I couldn't write this piece. And so I didn't. I avoided it and avoided it and avoided it. And I kept on uh, just making busy work for myself by interviewing psychologists, one psychologist after another. Every day I would sort of get on the phone, interview them for two hours, and then spend the rest of the day transcribing the notes. And because I'm a lousy typist, there would be my day. And it felt like a job and it felt like work. And I was amassing thousands of words of notes, but I wasn't writing the piece. Um, and then finally, on like nine days before the piece was due, I woke up at like 5.30 in the morning to keep transcribing. And then about 8.45, I was going to call uh, Martin Seligman, who is the father of positive psychology and the positive psychology movement. And I was going to interview him. And at 8.45, I was going to pick up the phone and call him. And the phone was out, and I thought, oh, damn it, you know. And I marched out to the uh, phone booth on the corner, and there in progress already was the worst-case scenario that no defensive pessimist could ever have envisioned. It was that the first tower of the World Trade Center was uh, on fire. It had been hit. And so I never wrote the piece. But it seemed to me that the seeds that it planted, you know, that there had to be room at the table for something more than just unbridled optimism. Because remember, you know, before September 11th, it was the midst of the internet boom, you know, here, which was this kind of cloud cuckoo land of just unbridled cargo cult-like optimism. And it was just sort of a, an ecosystem, a sort of a back-and-forth rain cycle of crap. What do you see as being the difference between someone who's... Uh, uh, whose negative thinking it gives them agency and someone whose negative thinking uh, uh, paralyzes them in some way. I just think, I, I really think that it's a matter of trying, uh, of really counting to 10. I, I, that, that's as best as I can put it. It's just sort of trying to regulate one's breathing, you know, because it's very easy to spin out of control and be the person on the subway uh, who soils themselves, screams, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, and then passes out. Uh, you know, And then you wake up 10 minutes later you know, on the floor of the subway with you know, soiled trousers and the subway's, of course, moving. It, it wasn't going to burst into flames when it stopped in the tunnel the way you thought it was. But you, know, you never want to be that guy. And the way not to be that guy is at best, you know, at, at its most basic level, it's about like regulating your breathing. Like, try to breathe in on a count of three and not on a count of 0 .003, you know, which will just make you hyperventilate and pass out. And there's some comfort to be taken from this, or perhaps not. The person who drowns from anxiety and the person who claims agency from their anxiety and the person who feels no anxiety at all, they're the same person. That's just life, you know? Life is this incredibly rich and dense and completely mutating, perpetually moving 
mixture of things. And I guess that's sort of comforting to know. No? It, it is. I mean, it's sort of comforting. Yeah, it's only sort of comforting. That's the late David Rakoff speaking with me in 2011. After a break, you can hear the rest of our conversation. His novel Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish was published just this month. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. What do you mean you haven't scheduled your summer vacation yet? If you want to join the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, you've only got a couple weeks to book your tickets. Set sail from Miami to the Bahamas with me, John Hodgman, Kurt Brownaller, Wyatt Cenac, Jonah Ray, Mark Marin, Eugene Merman, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, Nellie Mackay, Dan Deacon, Cameron Esposito, Scott Simpson, John Roderick, Jasper Red, Josie Long, Rhea Butcher, and Nick Thune. It is all within your grasp. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th, 2013. It's sponsored by Splitsider.com and MailChimp. Ticket sales close forever, August 9th. Go to www.boatparty.biz now. That's www.boatparty.biz. Do something for yourself. That, by the way, a real website. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're hearing part of my conversation with the late David Rakoff. We spoke shortly after the publication of his book, Half Empty. One of the things that that you write really evocatively um, about is your your young adulthood in in New York City, and particularly it, it coming in the context of this this time that I remember very well growing up in in San Francisco. And I'm, I'm a few years younger than you, but um, I remember very vividly. Uh, the way that uh, AIDS shaped just life. Sure. And I wonder how you think that dealing with dealing with that environment and also dealing with your own cancer, which, which first emerged when you were in your 20s, um, affected your uh, approach to life and doing work when, when, you were, when you were young, specifically at that point in your life. Well, it's interesting. I I went to college in New York City. And I arrived here in 1982. And already we knew that there was something going on. You know, when I was in high school uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, um, we were hearing news reports. In fact, I remember very specifically one of my best friends who was, we? you know, we were very, very close, but she often said sort of just outlandish, stupid things. And she said to me, and this was in 1980, she said, have you heard about the gay cancer? And I said, don't be ridiculous. And she said, no, 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 it's really true. And they have a spokesperson. Her name is Brandy Alexander. And I just walked away. I was just like, you're just insane. and You're ridiculous. So when I got to New York, I sort of knew about it. You know, it was certainly there, um, and it was thrumming a bass note. I certainly had reasons that uh, I won't, you know, cer- certainly won't talk about in a public context, but I had reasons uh, of my own to develop a very healthy erotophobia, and it was only enhanced by the fact that there was this thing that was targeting my ostensible uh, hoped for, aspired to community, you know, which is that of a gay guy. I wanted to be a full-fledged gay guy in New York. And I never became the gay guy that I sort of thought I'd become in certain aspects. I mean, in terms of grooming and wardrobe. In other aspects, <laughs> in other aspects, I, be- I you know, I-, I won't lie, all my dreams came true. But in certain aspects, I didn't. Um, so it was definitely part of that thing. It was definitely a thrumming bass note. Uh, uh, a kind of a terrifying leitmotif. But that is not to say that I didn't, you know, sail through college and sort of have a worldview wherein, I don't know, they chalk it up to a certain kind of arrogance. I really thought things might work out for me, you know. And then, you know, I graduated college and I was, I, I had my first bout of cancer. And that really 
changed the equation for me, or rather changed what I felt entitled to expect from life. And what I felt entitled to expect from life, having, having been laid low by my first bout of illness, was, you know, not much. You know, so that sort of existed as worldview for a long, long time. And for a long, long time, I felt very chastened and kind of reprimanded, you know, by cosmic events. And it took many years for me to sort of get over that. And there's still very much an aspect of that to uh, the way I live my life. You know, I'm, I'm, there's a certain kind of sheepish fear that if I get too big for my britches, I will be... Uh, and deservedly so, laid low by that's circumstance. Such, that's such a different... I mean, we're, we're so used to hearing stories of people who face life-threatening illness and come out of that illness with some sort of renewed sense of purpose and, and the idea that they should seize every day as it comes rather than feeling rather than feeling like... Um, uh, it was it was the universe telling them that they had gotten too big for their britches. I know it's not a very healthy it's not a very healthy takeaway, and I don't mean to <laughs> and I don't mean to say that it is, and and I recognize that it's not. Um, and I suppose part of a creative life is giving oneself permission to be sort of too big for one's britches, you know, to swing for those fences in a way, and to think that what one has to say is you know, worth listening to, which is a very arrogant thing to do, if you think about it. And I I will even, on those occasions when I read the stuff that I've written, and they aren't many, you know, frequently, I, I don't really look back a lot, because it's a little, that's well, a little embarrassing, you know, and uh, there's some stuff that I, you know, there was a period where I couldn't read my stuff for years and years, I couldn't read it without cringing. But I do recognize sometimes, even in the things I make, the visual things I make, the little crafty projects, I sometimes see the constricted fear in the writing or in the care and meticulousness with which certain things have been made. And um, it nauseates me <laughs> and it makes me angry with myself and sick sick of myself. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're hearing part of my conversation with the late David Rakoff. We spoke shortly after the publication of his book, Half Empty. A, a, lot, of the, a lot of the writing about, um, about your life in your 20s is in the context of this, um, uh, what could loosely be called a, a takedown of uh, rent. Yes. One of the things that uh, you react so negatively to about rent um is this world where it, it seems like it's it, it seems like you're almost upset that that these people aren't taking care of business that they're not like making things and doing things um and that they you know you end one of the pieces by one of the one of the uh uh one of the sections of the piece by saying that uh you were paying the damn rent um, yes. but on the other hand, you, you still at that point in time were struggling to, uh, were, were struggling to write, to do the thing that you actually wanted to do, which was be a writer. Yes. I, I wanted, I wanted more than anything in my life to have a creative life. And I say it, uh, with no trace of disingenuousness that I am really the luckiest person in North America. Uh, I am the luckiest guy in North America right now. I have a creative life. You know, it's, it's an intense, intense privilege. But what it means to have a creative life is to really do one's work. And what I found so loathsome about rent as a larger cultural symptom, because we live in it right now, is that there has been this kind of shying away from... Uh, and the trying to relegate to to the status of cultural myth of the primacy of work, that it doesn't take much work to be creative. And in fact, it takes nothing but work, a kind of a constant grind, an embarrassing grind of tolerating yourself long enough to eke out these drafts of work that are by their nature, because they are drafts, 
they're going to be bad. And you have to live with yourself for long enough to let that bad example of your work exist so that you can then make it better. It's not attractive, and you wouldn't put it in a reality show, and you wouldn't put it in a musical. And I understand that. But that's what it means to be an artist. You know, it takes constant work and redrafting and redrafting and interrogation. And the hanging out part of a, for want of a better term, bohemian lifestyle is lovely. But that's the dessert. The rest of it is some really, really fibrous, hard-to-chew vegetables of just doing your damn work. And nobody in Rent, and nobody on reality television, and I must say, very few people at the constant storytelling series that are just inundating me, you know, and I stay at home. I never leave my house, and yet I'm inundated by storytelling series. It's that same damn thing. It's like, don't worry about notions of craft. Don't worry about notions of the doing over and over and over again. None of that matters. Just, you know, get up at the mic and talk. That, that'll make you an artist. And I don't think that's true. And this goes back to the too big for my britches thing, and maybe it's Canadian. I don't know. But it's like the world doesn't owe you a living. You know, if you want to do that, then you've still got to pay your rent. And you pay it however you're going to pay it. Just, you know, I sound like I sound like one of those uh, guys with an American eagle on top of his TV set. But I can't help <laughs> feeling like, you know, get a job, hippie. You know, we all had jobs. We all did our creative work. You know, it was a hobby until it paid. But if it's not paying you, then it's a hobby. And you got to have a job. You know, the world really doesn't owe you its ear until it decides to give you its ear or its eyes. Your cancer recurred uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and at one point you, you were facing, um, among other things, the possible removal of, of one of your arms and its shoulder. Yes. Um, as I was reading about that, I was really scared kind of along with you about the shoulder part. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah, it was really funny. I was really trying to like, I was trying to unpack it for myself. Um, and I wonder how you, and, and thankfully you, you didn't, you didn't end up having to have your arm and shoulder removed, but there's, that really struck me in reading about it, how when I imagine myself without my arm and then I imagine myself without my arm and shoulder, how different those two were. Yes. How scary uh, it was to lose almost like part of the, I don't know, part of the core of my body, maybe. It's that. And I even, I think I even write about it in the, in the chapter. It immediately made me, it immediately made me think of sort of pre-conscious things. And what I guess I came up with was I was worried about evoking in others a pre-conscious, pre-human disgust. And it's the disgust that we feel by lack of symmetry. That my silhouette would be asymmetrical and that it would be a sort of a jarring thing to see and after a split second of confusion what people would feel for me was disgust and that was very hard to contemplate you know I'm still in chemotherapy right now for uh, the tumor behind my collarbone is pretty tenacious so it's back so I'm still in chemotherapy and the hope is that the chemo will work to the extent that it'll shrink it away from it's a very crowded area the various cables and arteries and such, that my surgeon can go in and remove it without removing my arm and, consequently, uh, my shoulder. But it, it still exists for me as a danger. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I have treatment every three weeks. Um, and it does worry me. And part of me is at least grateful that my uh my identity is somewhat set you know i i have a, something of a reputation uh and a career that is in place um 
so that I so that my lack of arm and shoulder wouldn't necessarily define me professionally and artistically. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, if look, if it happens, I know enough that I'm going to be David Rakoff, the one-armed writer. <laughs> I know it, but at least I have something close to a body of work prior to that that, that doesn't define me in that way. It seems like you. It- you have engaged your illness very differently now, uh, 15 or so years after your first bout of cancer. When you no, write, 20, 20 plus years between the bouts, yeah. Um, when, you, when you wrote that you, you initially, um, you're, the first time around, you essentially just said to the doctors, do what you need to do. Yeah. Um, which I, <laughs> which was dumb since it was the it did, treatment that gave me this second bout. Do you think that there's any relationship between your ability as an adult to engage so fruitfully with your work and um, the fact that you've been more able to engage uh, your treatment with this second round of cancer? That's interesting. Well, part of it is, you know, there's no one taking care of me. Do you know what I mean? I have to take care of myself. Um, I mean, I have a family, obviously, and they're, you know, they're involved to a, to a certain degree, although, you know, I'm being treated down in New York and they're all in Canada. Um, so there's just a certain, certain you know, day-to-day realities where I'm the one who has to make the decisions. And as such, I have to... Uh, be engaged in a way that uh, I don't have the option of of ignoring it in that way. But part of it is, yes, as you say, something that I've learned just by, you know, living my life and getting older, but it is also very much, uh, if you're going to write a book, well, if you're going to write a book, period, you've got to be kind of open to the world of, you know, sensory stimuli if you're going to be, you know, remotely descriptive about the world in which we live. Um, so you can't really be asleep at the wheel unless you're going to write something, you know, so spare and so masculine that, you know, I don't know, only 19-year-old boys are going to read it and then they're going to steal it from the bookstores and you're going to have to ask behind the counter to get a copy. <laughs> that's not that's not the way that I speak. It's not the way that I write. And it's not the way that I move through the world, you know. But if you're going to do that, but if you're going to write a book about how it really behooves you as a human being, as a moral creature to engage with the world and all its darkness, then I suppose it does sort of prepare you in a way. But that said, I I didn't really want to know about it either. And it's hard to know about. It's hard to look at plain-facedly, you know. But, you know, in the last week alone, I've heard of people with problems so much worse than mine right now, you know, which is just part of being alive. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, I'd rather look. I'd rather not be going through this. I'm not an idiot, you know. I'll do a lot for a good chapter, but I'd <laughs> rather not have done this, obviously. Um, and truthfully, I would have wanted greater book sales, considering. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but that said, there's no profit in in you know refusing to look at something. There's just it's just not going to help. David Rakoff passed away in August of 2012. He was 47 years old. His new novel is out now. It's called Love, Dishonor, Marry, Die, Cherish, Perish.
We like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. I only know of one noir that opens with an extended scene of our hero trying to feed his cat. The movie is Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, and the cat, incidentally, is not having it. Our hero, Philip Marlowe, isn't quite what you think of when you think of a noir hero. He isn't Humphrey Bogart or even Lee Marvin. He's not a big, tough, flinty-eyed macho man. He's, well, he's Elliot Gould. Big and handsome, with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, but also a little nervous and very, very mumbly, and a bit of a wiseacre, even in the interrogation room. Why can't you answer one simple question? Well, for two reasons. I don't like the way you guys ask questions, and I don't know what you want to know. Are you crazy? Yeah. In the traditional world of noir, the hero puts his broad shoulders down and barrels through the night, leaving a trail of fallen bad guys in his wake. The light comes from street lamps and slatted window shades and single bare bulbs in interrogation room ceilings. Things get tough and bloody, and you can't trust the dames, but besides that, you know where you stand. But... The Long Goodbye is a different breed. When Altman took on the project, he transposed it from the grim, rain-slicked streets of 1950s L.A. to the sunny, health-food-obsessed world of 1970s Southern California. Outside Philip Marlowe's apartment window is a two-bit hood waiting to follow him, but also a group of topless women doing yoga. Morning, Harry. Have a good night. Hey, Marlowe. Hey, you know, you know those girls that live next door to you? You know what I think? I think they're a couple of lesbians. That's what I think. Yeah, what makes you say that? Well, look at them up there doing all those contortions together and with no clothes on. Oh, they're just doing yoga. What? Yoga. I don't know what it is, but it's yoga. Yeah, what do they do for a living? They dip candles. What? Yeah, they got a cute little shop over on Hollywood Boulevard. They dip them and sell them. I can remember when people just had jobs. It's a very funny film, but it also captures that special self-obsession of the dawning new age. Marlowe is a 1950s man, a man with simple ethics, trying to be decent, but the narcissism of the world around him keeps trying to pull him down. By the 70s, it was clear that the dark side of Los Angeles wasn't, you know, the evil that lurked behind the white picket fences. It wasn't the dark, rainy night that came after the bright, sunny days. It was the way that a good man can get lost and lonely, wandering through a disconnected world. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided to us by the Go Team. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me, my actual email address, jesse at MaximumFun.org. And uh, that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.